0: So, uh, hey folks, got a little good news and a little bad news about this episode. The good news is I did, in fact, get a pop filter. The bad news is I did not, in fact, understand how a pop filter works. So, unfortunately, this is probably going to be the poppiest episode I've ever released. Uh, I do apologize in advance. I know that is kind of a lot to take, uh, but I think it's still a good episode, and uh, I've gotten this a little bit dialed in now. As you can tell, I'm spending a few episodes working on the new microphone and the new setup. Thank you very much, and uh, enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, written and directed by Wes Craven. Now, we've already talked about Craven back during the various installments of the Scream series that he directed, but that was the Wes Craven of the 1990s. By then, he was already an acknowledged master of horror, a legend in the industry based in no small part on the movie we're about to dive into. Not that this was even his first masterpiece, by the time he came up with the concept for A Nightmare on Elm Street, he'd already directed the infamous films The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, and made a name for himself as someone willing to push the boundaries of good taste in order to shock and terrify audiences. Both films, by the way, made for Sean S. Cunningham of Friday the 13th fame, who returned the favor by stepping in to help out with some uncredited second unit footage for this movie. Looking for some way to shake up the slasher subgenre, which was getting, let's just say distinctly overpopulated in the wake of Halloween and Friday the 13th, Craven found inspiration in an article from 1977 about a group of Hmong refugees suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder following their arrival in America. The Hmong are an Asian ethnic and cultural group originating in southern China who, much like the Romani, were scattered in a diaspora that led to communities in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia among many other parts of Southeast Asia. Many Hmong fought alongside the United States in the Vietnam War, and when America pulled out of Vietnam after first illegally expanding the conflict to Laos and Cambodia, the Hmong people suffered intense persecution for their allegiance. American groups, mostly a mix of Christian charities who had religious ties to the Christianized Hmong, and Vietnam veteran organizations who felt a strong personal obligation to the people who saved their lives and then were abandoned, helped to bring Hmong refugees over to America. Especially to Minnesota, where there's a strong and vibrant Hmong community. Many of my co-workers are Hmong, in fact. So you can understand very easily why these men would have nightmares so severe as to prevent them from sleeping at all. What's less understood, and what inspired Craven to create Freddy Krueger, is why so many of them spontaneously died in their sleep. Reports at the time said there was no sign of heart failure, and the deaths were considered inexplicable according to the initial articles Craven would have read, but it's now considered to be due to a form of inherited hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that's thickened heart muscles for us laypeople, that's more common in certain racial groups. This resulted in difficulty pumping blood and difficulty conducting electricity through the heart muscle, resulting in cardiac arrhythmia, an irregular and erratic heartbeat. The nightmares put extra strain on the heart, causing the arrhythmia to become a rest, and the apparently healthy person died in their sleep. We've come a long way in recognizing and treating this condition, but in 1981, it was the stuff urban legends are made of. Craven combined the notion with an old memory he had from childhood of seeing a disheveled man outside his bedroom window with a fedora hat and a trench coat, the trench coat was dropped for the movie version, but don't worry, it'll reappear eventually, as well as another memory he had of being frightened by someone with severe burn scars. Unfortunately, there's an ableist thread running through the entire slasher subgenre, with the killer's unusual external appearance being treated as a sign of their evil nature. And of course, he also mixed in the name of his childhood bully, Fred Krueger. He's almost never called Freddy in this movie, only Fred. I'll be using Freddy, though, because at this point it's traditional. This kind of naming practice is technically grounds for a defamation lawsuit, by the way, and I don't recommend it for aspiring writers, but maybe the real Fred Krueger was kind of proud of being the stuff monsters are made of. It should be mentioned before I go any further that this is probably right up there with Halloween and Night of the Living Dead as one of the most thoroughly documented film productions in existence. If you want to know more about literally anything I'm talking about, you can go back for either the movie or book versions of Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, which covers the entire franchise in exhaustive detail, and there's also a handy episode of the movies that made us on Netflix about the film. I am indebted to these sources for their exhaustive research. Craven spent a year or so shopping his screenplay around, but no one was biting until Bob Shea, the head of a small independent film distribution company that wanted to get into producing, decided the script could help put New Line Cinema on the map. They'd made one movie already, the horror film Alone in the Dark. Every new studio gets its start making horror movies because horror is the genre that reliably makes money, but it did badly in theaters despite a pretty impressive cast. Jack Palance was in it, as were Martin Lando and Donald Pleasence and they were forced to consign the film to video. So it's safe to say they needed a hit pretty damn badly. The Movies That Made Us episode goes into the economic stuff in a lot more detail, describing cash shortages that forced the crew to work without pay for a short period, and left Craven unable to attend his first table read due to a dispute over his contract. Oh, and a traffic accident involving music supervisor Michael Arciaga that abruptly ended his Hollywood career when he took the money budgeted for the score and went on the lamb. It's a very interesting documentary, even though I obviously can't vouch for the reliability of any of the anecdotes involved. After lining up Jim Doyle to do the eye-popping special effects, he admits on the movies that made us that he was the only person willing to work for the budget they had available, and getting Dave Miller to do Freddy's terrifying burn makeup, Craven began casting. He originally wanted to get a looming, powerful, physical figure, but when he began testing stuntmen for Freddy's dialogue, he soon realized he'd need an actor instead. David Warner was considered, and there are even some photos of the initial makeup design for him, but Shea, Craven, and Warner himself insist he was never actually approached for the part. But when a young actor named Robert England, who is primarily known for guest appearances on some early 80s TV shows and a comic relief role in the miniseries V, came in with his hair slicked back and cigarette ash under his eyes and a cold, deliberately unblinking stare, Craven decided he had something to work with. And certainly England's parlayed it into one hell of a career as a horror icon. You can see the pivot on his IMDb page. Before A Nightmare in Elm Street, he had roles like Informer and Painter and Hood Number 1, although he was prominently featured in the very fun Roger Corman movie Galaxy of Terror, which I'd love to cover someday. But after Freddy came around, he was Eric in the Phantom of the Opera remake, the Marquis de Sade in Night Terrors, Bill Gartley in The Mingler, Raymond Beaumont in Wishmaster, Professor Wexler in Urban Legend, Jackson Roth in Strangeland, Samson in Hatchet, Doc Halloran in Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, a personal favorite of mine, he actually plays the Dr. Loomis role to someone else's horror franchise slasher, Ian in Zombie Strippers, and so on up through his recent role in Stranger Things that explicitly nods to his 80s celebrity. He even directed a horror movie, 1988's 976 Evil, which we may wind up discussing somewhere down the line. If there's a Mount Rushmore of horror actors, he's earned a place on it. For his female lead, Craven went with an even more unknown actor. 20-year-old Heather Langenkamp had been in exactly two roles before A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Outsiders and the TV movie Passions, and all of her scenes had been cut from one of them. Langenkamp was an Oklahoma native who moved to California to go to college and got bit by the acting bug, and her parents decided to pay for her to try her hand at auditions for a few months. Craven wanted someone with more spunk and determination than his previous horror protagonists, his daughter had just been calling him out over scenes in Swamp Thing where Adrian Barbeau tripped and fell for no reason, and he wanted to make a more explicitly feminist film, and Langenkamp fit the bill despite her lack of polish and her still very clearly audible southern accent. The rest of the friend group was filled out with unknowns as well, unsurprisingly, as a cash-strapped production from a new independent studio, they weren't really able to get a hold of any well-known actors like Charlie Sheen, who did audition, but whose salary demands would have broken the budget in half. So Amanda Wyss, who plays false protagonist Tina, was mostly known for a few guest appearances on genre shows like The Powers of Matthew Starr and Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, and a role in the future cult classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She's done quite nicely for herself since then, though, with appearances in everything from Cheers and St. Elsewhere to JAG and CSI, but to a certain contingent of film fans, she will always be Beth, John Cusack's ex in the movie Better Off Dead a year after this film was made. Actor J.S.U. Garcia, on the other hand, has taken a more, um, unconventional path through Hollywood. Born Jesus Garcia, and credited in this film as Nick Corey, the Cuban-American actor who plays Rod went from being an almost total unknown to having a fairly regular career of guest spots and smaller roles in movies like Vampire in Brooklyn and Candyman Day of the Dead. Somewhere around 1990, he then wound up in the orbit of John Roger, born Roger Delano Hinkins, who emerged from a near-death experience back in the 60s during a kidney surgery with the conviction that he'd encountered a higher consciousness in his comatose state. He founded a quasi-religious organization called the Movement of Spiritual Inner Awareness, which has been accused of being a cult of personality for John Roger himself, and which borrows heavily from Eastern philosophy and transcendental meditation. Garcia describes himself as, quote, J.R.'s live-in bodyguard, chauffeur, student, collaborator, and friend for more than a quarter century until his passing in 2014. According to JSU, JR continues his work from the spirit after his death, and JSU continues to follow his teachings, and I think he and I have some very different viewpoints on a lot of important topics, but I wish him well. Compared to that, Johnny Depp's story is relatively simple. He's a narcissistic, vindictive, spousal abuser who smeared his ex-wife Amber Heard in the court of public opinion as a way of getting back at her for leaving him, which threatened his fragile ego and made him feel like the only way he could continue to control her was to force her to defend herself against a defamation of character lawsuit so that she would have to relive every moment of their emotionally abusive relationship. He was able to introduce enough doubt into the jury's mind to earn partial damages, but make no mistake, a court in Britain, the single most plaintiff-friendly venue for libel and slander in the entire world found that he could not sue a newspaper for calling him a wife-beater because the truth is an absolute defense against libel. He was also in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. That's all for the friend group. Oh, um, wife-beater Johnny Depp plays Nancy's boyfriend Glenn with one N. But Nancy's parents also feature prominently in the story. John Saxon, who plays her father, was already well-established as a character actor by the time this movie rolled around. He got his start all the way back in the 50s, and by 1984 he was famous for his role as the villainous Roper in Enter the Dragon and as Lieutenant Fuller in the seminal proto-slasher Black Christmas. He was not famous at the time for his part in the movie Mitchell, but when that film eventually became a classic Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, his part in it garnered some attention, mainly because the group used a print that had already been edited for television, and his death scene in the third act was snipped out. People accused the MST3K crew of cutting the conclusion to his character arc and then making jokes about its absence, but this was a pre-internet era with research being much harder to come by, and they legitimately had no idea what happened to him in the film. In any event, he continued playing cops and heavies right up until his death in 2020 and was greatly mourned by film fans. Ronnie Blakely, on the other hand, was mainly known for one role when she took the part of Nancy's mother, but it was kind of a doozy. She played country singer Barbara Jean in legendary director Robert Altman's 1975 film Nashville, a role that earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress, and it's safe to say she's been dining out on that particular impressive performance ever since. She hasn't worked a lot in film and television, preferring her music career, but she's got a few famous movies under her belt, like 1978's The Driver, and she's even directed a couple of films, I Played It For You and Of One Blood. And while I don't normally list a ton of small parts, I have to mention that Dr. King, the physician who's called in to perform Nancy's sleep study, is played by Charles Fleischer. Fleischer is an actor and comedian with over a hundred roles on film and television, but none of them more iconic and immortal than his performance as the voice of cartoon legend Roger Rabbit in the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit? He's reprised the part in subsequent shorts and guest appearances, including 2022's Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and honestly it's worth tracking down the production history of Who Framed Roger Rabbit to learn all about the dedication and professionalism he brought to that film because it's truly an amazing story that I unfortunately can't cover here due to that film's ostensible status as a comedy. Although, come on, it's a horror movie. When I killed your brother, Eddie, I talked just like this! And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the film's other famous cameo. Lynn Shay, sister of producer Bob Shay, makes an appearance as Nancy's teacher in the famous classroom sequence, part of a whole career of cameos and character parts that include Critters, My Demon Lover, The Hidden, Amityville A New Generation, Dead End, The Hillside Strangler, Snakes on a Plane, I Was a Teenage Werebear, Ouija, The Midnight Man, Darkness Falls, The Grudge remake, and of course the Insidious series. It's always a delight to spot her in a film, delivering sometimes as little as a line or two, but always giving it the blessing of a horror icon. And with the knowledge that her blessing awaits us, let's dig in. We begin with the original New Line cinema logo, which is a bunch of lines strobing horizontally across the screen to form the words, and which always feels like it's doing physical damage to my eyeballs every time I see it, followed by a credit sequence during which Freddy Krueger constructs his iconic razor glove. Those aren't actually Robert England's hands, though. England didn't have the requisite know how to make a complex prop like that on screen, so it's actually special effects assistant Charles Bellardinelli who can be credited as the first performer to play Freddy. The glove was designed by Jim Doyle, who apparently didn't take safety into account when attaching the tomato knives to the metal finger appliances. The blades were not dulled, and several people got minor cuts from working with the prop, including England himself. As the credits end, we see the gloves slash through a dirty brown curtain as Tina goes running through a dark hallway with concrete walls and dripping water everywhere. She runs past a bleeding goat and into a sinister-looking boiler room. Goats in this franchise symbolize Freddy's arrival in a dream, supposedly because the dreamer is a lamb to the slaughter, although citation very much needed on that. She tries to find some way out, but the maze of pipes and walkways seems to go on forever, and Charles Bernstein's... Soundtrack gives the whole sequence a wonderful sense of ominous dread. Eventually, she runs into Freddy, and as he pursues her, it's like she can't seem to gain any traction on the floor, which is unfortunately just represented by the camera zooming in very close on Wiss while she jogs in place. Look, the budget for this tremendously imaginative and inventive movie was 1.1 million dollars. The seams were bound to show somewhere. Tina makes it to a dead end and turns around, determined to face her pursuer, but Freddy rises up behind her, grabbing her by the shoulder as she wakes up screaming. Tina's mom, played by Donna Woodrum, comes in to check on her, but she insists it was just a dream, even though the slashes in her nightgown suggest otherwise. Her mother returns to bed, and the next morning Tina relates the dream to her best friend Nancy as the two of them drive into school with Nancy's boyfriend Glenn. And let's get this out of the way now, yes, Glenn's car has California plates. Yes, you can see palm trees in the background of many scenes. That's not a production error. The original Nightmare was supposed to be set in Southern California, and there are even a few excised lines commenting on the supposedly laid-back attitude of the townsfolk. The sequels retcon to the setting to small-town Ohio, which make for some jarring continuity problems when viewing the original, but it's still not like the flowering bushes on Halloween in Haddonfield. Tina says her dream is just like the old skipping rope line they used to sing as children, one, two, Freddy's coming for you, which is a nice subtle hint that the history of Tina's dream stalker is intertwined with the history of the town in ways that have passed into local lore. But before they can get to three, four, better lock your door, and before Nancy can describe a nightmare of her own from the previous evening, Rod comes up to talk about his erection because it's pretty much the only thing he can think about. He's a straight-up 50s greaser, complete with leather jacket and insults like, "Hey." up yours with a twirling lawnmower. And I'd frankly find him unbearable if he wasn't the only character with any real personality to speak of. Because let's pull the band-aid off now. Pretty much all the dialogue in this movie feels like what we're getting in this scene. The concept behind Nightmare is so unusual by horror movie standards, even though it feels intuitive with almost 40 years of hindsight, that pretty much every scene has a ton of exposition pipe to lay down, and all of the lines are just rote plot work. By the time we get done explaining that Rod and Tina are in an on-again, off-again relationship, and Glenn and Nancy are childhood sweethearts, and they're all having weird dreams, and it's related to the old skipping song they remember from childhood, the scene is over and the bell is ringing to send them to class. Even the jokes land like plot beats. And I think it legitimately affects the performances. Langenkamp isn't especially naturalistic in this film, she's a novice actor in its shows, with some slightly over-earnest line readings and a bit too much emphasis on her stressed words. But I don't think anyone sounds especially good reading this script, it's just so ham-fisted, with so much dialogue that's flat-out explaining the plot to the audience, that everyone comes off like they're in an educational short about the dangers of sleeping without a dream buddy or something. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more I hear similarities to the speaking style in Carnival of Souls or Reefer Madness. It's something that really drags the film down for me, despite the imaginative dream sequences that are the hallmark of the series. Everyone goes to class, and that night, Tina invites Glenn and Nancy to keep her company while her mom is out of town. This is a hallmark of the 80s, the absentee or indifferent parent. A lot of the people making movies at the time were children of the 50s and 60s, where kids were encouraged to go off and play on their own unsupervised while the adults got on with their own activities. A lot of people lament the helicopter parenting of the modern era, but you can tell a lot from media, and many of the people who lived through the old way of doing things really felt the absence of an emotionally present parental figure. There's a labored gag where Glenn fools his mom into thinking he's actually spending the night with his cousin over by the airport, and again, even the jokes feel like exposition in this film. This is such a lengthy bit, far longer than it has to be, and it delivers its laughs with such a leaden lack of subtlety that it almost becomes anti-comedy as a result. Tina goes into more details about her dream, which makes Nancy say, That's amazing you saying that. That made me remember the dream I had last night. Again, I'm not going to say that Langenkamp doesn't sound a little wooden in all of her delivery. She's a 20-year-old who's practically brand new to acting. Of course, she's going to be a bit stiff. But I defy anyone to make that particular line sound naturalistic. It's the same problem Jake Lloyd had in The Phantom Menace. Everyone lambasted his performance, but you try saying yippee out loud and make it sound like something a human being would actually say. Oh, and Nancy had the same dream as Tina, and the way Glenn reacts hints that he might have had it as well, even though he tries to insist it's impossible. Before they can get into it any further, though, they hear a sound from outside, and although the film tries to play it for tension, again, to a degree that feels very heavy-handed and forced, it turns out it's just Rod come to crash the party and have sex with his girlfriend. He literally picks Tina up and carries her off to her mom's bedroom which is treated as a playful flirtation and not a horrifying sexual assault because this was the 80s and the entire perception of consent relied upon the woman pretending to be reluctant whether she was or not so she could plausibly deny the inevitable slut-shaming that would follow any admission of enjoying intercourse. At the time, sadly, no one would have even batted an eye at this scene. Glenn tries to put the moves on Nancy in turn, but she's not interested in having sex in a stranger's house, and he winds up sleeping on the couch while Nancy sleeps just on the other side of the wall from Rod and Tina and has to put up with the sounds of their extremely vigorous sex. This was apparently Amanda Wyss' least favorite scene to film. Rod rolls over and goes to sleep, spent, but not before delivering to us another blatant chunk of exposition. He too has been having nightmares lately. Honestly, the difference between the clunky waking conversations and the gorgeous, surreal moments of horror in the dream sequences are so vast they could practically be from two different movies. Nancy tosses and turns restlessly in Tina's bed, and when she does momentarily fall asleep, the wall distorts and warps like a sheet of rubber as Freddy tries to push through to get to her, only to recede into place when she wakes up again. This was actually rubber, of course, and the body on the other side is actually effects designer Jim Doyle. Tina, meanwhile, is awakened in the middle of the night by the sound of pebbles clattering against the bedroom window, and when she goes outside to look, she finds Freddy outside in the alley waiting for her. His arms elongate to stretch from wall to wall, cutting off any attempts to get past her. And I know this is such an iconic moment, but I'll admit it doesn't quite work for me because I've seen enough Elongated Man and Plastic Man and Fantastic Four comics to think of stretching powers as inherently whimsical, so it just kind of looks goofy to me. Tina responds to the sight by saying, Please God! And Freddy interrupts her with his first real close-up and his first line of dialogue, holding up the razor glove to his face and saying, This... Is God. And when you talk about what really gives the franchise its longevity, I think you have to pay special attention to the iconic look of Freddy Krueger because he's so instantly and indelibly memorable that within less than a year of the film's release, he became one of the more popular Halloween costumes out there. The glove is wonderfully distinctive, giving his hand the look of a predatory wild animal, and the burn makeup is less about realism, unlike the 2010 remake which tried to convey a naturalistic effect, and more about giving his face the profile of a grinning goblin straight out of some horrible dark fairy tale. The sweater was picked specifically to offend the eye, No, really, Craven saw an article about the two most clashing colors according to the science of optics, and the hat gives him such a sharp, dynamic profile in every shadow. The moment you see him, he is instantly scary, right down to the body language England uses to make the glove feel like an explosive instrument of violence just waiting to be unleashed. Famously, it was heavy enough that he found him unconsciously slumping his right shoulder, and he used that in shooting to make it look like he was reaching for a holstered pistol. It's all magnificent. Which is why it's such a shame that the very next shot is him chasing Tina down the alley, waving his hands in the air like an overenthusiastic haunted house employee. You practically expect him to shout, Booga Booga Booga! Thankfully, it's just a moment or two, and it leads to a great shock moment as Tina runs away looking behind her only to run right into him. She gets away from him and into her backyard, but he jumps out from behind a tree, this is another haunted house moment, and demonstrates his supernatural nature by slicing off his own fingers in front of Tina's terrified eyes. She runs for the back door, but it's locked, and she winds up in a struggle with Freddy that ends when she pulls his entire face clean off to reveal a gruesome skull. But this time she doesn't wake up, Rod does. And he finds Tina still lying in bed, her body right where it was all along. She never went outside, that was all part of the dream she was having. And someone is under the sheet with her. Rod pulls it free, but that only means that he sees Tina rise into the air, her body gashed by invisible blades, before some unseen entity drags her clean up the wall and onto the ceiling where it butchers her and leaves her to plummet back onto the bed. She's dead, the whole room is soaked with gore, and unfortunately for Rod, he's the only other person there and the doors are locked, and the others know he was carrying a knife. It's a huge shift in the dynamic of the story and an eye-popping visual to boot. This was done, by the way, with an entire revolving set and props that were nailed, starched, or glued into position. The camera followed the motion of the room, so it looks like it's Tina that's moving and not the walls, floor, or ceiling. The whole thing was so disorienting to film that Wiss had trouble standing up between takes, I've always said that digital effects are just one more tool in the toolkit, and no one should be ashamed just because they're not going practical, but god do I love big impressive scenes like this where all the effort that goes into making them happen is right there on screen. It's glorious. Nancy and Glenn hear the noise and bust the door down, only to find Tina's slashed corpse in an open window where Rod has decided to flee rather than face questions he can't answer. Nancy's father, Lieutenant Donald Thompson, is called in to investigate the homicide, and he's frustrated and annoyed to find out that his daughter was found at the scene of the crime. He immediately treats this as a failure of maternal parenting, and it's clear just from the way that he and Nancy's mom Marge greet each other that this is a relationship that's been irreparably broken for quite some time. And I love both of these actors' performances, each in their own weird way, Blakely is off in her own little world, doing a high-camp, drag-queen version of an alcoholic suburbanite, while Saxon has had to salvage so many scripts with nothing but his attitude before that he instantly knows exactly how to do a tough-cops-exchange exposition scene and make it sound riveting. He's probably my favorite thing about this movie, and I love that he came into Craven's office with a selection of toupees ready to go based on what kind of emotional impact the director wanted his hairline to make. Truly an epic actor. This is also some of Langenkamp's most relatable work in the film as well. At 20, she's not too old to remember what it was like to be frustrated with parents who didn't listen, and she really sells her irritation at being treated like a naive child when she says she doesn't think Rod could do something like this. It helps, I think, that this is one of the most straightforward bits of narrative in the whole story. Dream demons and shared nightmares and dying for real if you die in your sleep is a lot to swallow, but the boyfriend says he didn't do it and the cops don't believe him is a classic trope that's very easy to understand. The next day, Nancy decides to go into school rather than sit at home obsessing about the death, even though her mother is concerned about her lack of sleep. She's approached by Rod, who's been hiding all night and who is clearly shaky and paranoid. Garcia, who was struggling with drug addiction at the time, admits that he used his trouble with substance abuse to make his performance more convincing, and it definitely shows. He explains to Nancy that he didn't do it, but it turns out that her dad was expecting something like this and had police following her the entire time. He and a half dozen or so cops show up to arrest Rod, and if Langenkamp was giving a solidly grounded emotional performance in her grief, it's very clear that she has no idea how to deliver the line, Daddy? You used me! I hate to harp on Langenkamp's performance because, again, she is very young and the script does her absolutely no favors, but the movie from here on out is going to be almost entirely her story and hers alone, and she clearly struggles with the material she's been given. I have to imagine the actor looks back on this and sees, in hindsight, a lot of things she wishes she knew how to do at that time. During English class, teacher Lin Shay gives a lecture on Shakespeare to a class of teens that have to be well into their 30s and in some cases their 40s. I don't often comment on this because I understand that casting real teens to play teens carries a number of practical difficulties as well as being a slightly fraught experience due to the additional imbalances placed on the actor-director power dynamic when age differences become involved, but I swear this is the oldest collection of extras I've ever seen asked to portray teenagers. It's not even like most... Most of them have any dialogue. The next time you put this movie in, watch the background of this scene and you will be absolutely rolling with laughter. Nancy's just beginning to nod off when she looks out the open classroom door and sees Tina standing there, covered in blood and zipped up in a translucent body bag the student switches almost mid-sentence from Julius Caesar to Hamlet, reciting, Oh god, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself the king of infinite space, were it not that I have bad dreams. And this is the kind of shit you come to the series for. Tina's body is gone when Nancy looks back, but there's a full-on color theory trail of blood where she was standing. This is actually the film I always think of when I see that meme, and Nancy gets up to follow it. Of course, nobody tells her to sit back down. There's a wonderfully awful moment when she goes out into the hallway and sees Tina's corpse being dragged away by an invisible figure, her legs lifted up by nothing as she slides across the floor in a slow, whispering slither of vinyl on linoleum. The sound design in this movie is absolutely fantastic. She races around the corner to find her, only to run headlong into a hall monitor wearing a crisp, clean version of the Freddy sweater. Where's your pass, she asks, leading to one of the weirdly iconic lines of this movie from Nancy, Screw your pass! Langenkamp definitely knows how to play that one. She runs past, but the hall monitor calls out to her in Freddy's voice and says, Hey, Nancy, no running in the hallway, with Freddy's razor glove on and blood streaking her face. This actor is Leslie Hoffman, by the way, and she's gone on to a nice little career as a stunt performer and stunt coordinator, and it's a sign of just how beloved this franchise is that to this day she still gets invited to horror conventions and asked to sign photos with, screw your pass. I love that kind of little role that becomes a signature. The Trail of Blood leads down the stairs and into the boiler room, which of course looks like the maze of pipes and walkways from Tina's dream. This was actually filmed in the basement of the Lincoln Heights Jail in Los Angeles, shortly before the facility was closed down for asbestos removal. She runs into Freddy, who slices open his own chest to reveal a writhing nest of maggots. This self-mutilation thing is an interesting thread that's almost entirely dropped for the sequels, but here you can really see that he enjoys unnerving his victims by demonstrating his own unkillable status. He then pursues her, laughing and giggling all the while. Realizing she's dreaming, Nancy presses her arm against a searing hot steam pipe to wake herself up, only to discover, as she comes back to consciousness screaming, that she's got an actual burn mark on the spot. She heads home, leaving her entirely flummoxed teacher to calm the class. And speaking of unfair things to ask a young actor to do, the script has her suddenly bursting into sobs as soon as she gets outside. Going from zero to sobbing terror is not something anyone does especially well, and Langenkamp's crying feels unfortunately very fake in a way that takes you out of the film. But just let me repeat as often as necessary that the director and screenwriter, who are of course one and the same, don't seem to have been giving her a lot of support here. Nancy goes to visit Rod in jail, and he repeats his claim that someone else murdered Tina even though he doesn't know who did it. All he has to go on was the outline under the covers, and he knows how impossible it all sounds to anyone listening. And I'll say, Garcia gives a very convincing performance here. He's being given material with real emotional heft, grief and survivor's guilt, and the fear of getting railroaded by the cops, and it all feeds very naturally into his admission that he's been having nightmares about a man with razor blades for fingers. It's an intense and moving scene, and Langenkamp's shocked stare as he confesses to exactly what she saw in her own dream is a really understandable reaction. I wish all the info dumps in this movie were done like this. That night, Nancy takes a long hot bath, which feels like an unforced error to me, but it's not like she's got a lot of experience with this, and we hear her recite the full version of the skipping rhyme that would become an iconic part of the franchise. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, get your crucifix. Seven, eight, better stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. And this is so reminiscent of the way the urban legends grew up around the grabber in the black phone, that I want to once again mention how badly I want to see a straightforward prequel with no supernatural elements that just follows the building tension and paranoia in a community whose kids are vanishing one by one. England could even do it himself. He said he's too old for the makeup, but he's not too old to play the creepy old janitor. But we need to set that aside, because we're about to get another one of the truly legendary scare sequences of this movie. As Nancy nods off, Freddy's claw tips emerge from the bathwater like the fin of the shark in Jaws. They submerge again as Nancy's mom knocks on the door and reminds her not to fall asleep in the bath, but when she leaves and Nancy begins to drift off again, she's pulled under the surface by Freddy and has to fight her way back up for air. The struggle wakes her back up, but she's becoming increasingly aware that the longer she stays awake, the quicker she starts dreaming when she does sleep, and the harder it is to wake herself back up. She grabs a bottle of caffeine pills from the medicine cabinet before going back to her room. The bathtub, by the way, was another triumph of Jim Doyle's quick-and-dirty low-budget innovation, built deeper than normal in spots to give him a place to stand underwater so he could wave Freddy's glove above the surface. Another bathtub, this one painted black to make it look deeper than it really was, stood in for the scenes where Langenkamp had to submerge herself completely. There's just so many simple but incredibly clever effects in this movie that I genuinely adore. That night, Nancy tries to stay awake by watching The Evil Dead, but wouldn't you know it, the movie is just too boring to keep her up at night and she switches it off. This was, of course, Craven's playful retaliation for the torn poster of The Hills Have Eyes in Raimi's movie, part of a little game the two men played right up until Craven's death. As she's walking around the room to keep herself from dozing off, Glenn climbs up the trellis and into her bedroom in a scene that Craven would later imitate himself to deliberate effect and scream. Glenn is of course there with only one thing on his mind, but Nancy shoots him down cold again. She's more interested in Glenn's dreams, but this guy's an unsupportive asshole who doesn't listen to his romantic partner, blows off her entirely valid concerns, and smugly thinks he knows better than everyone else. And he's playing Glenn, too. Nancy, who at one point in the scene looks at herself in the mirror and says, God, I look 20, a fun little nod to the actor's actual age, has a plan. She's going to test the reality of her dreams by leaving Glenn to stand guard over her and wake her up if she begins experiencing distress, while her dream self goes to the police station to see Rod. It works in a sense, but sadly what she sees is Freddy walking straight through the bars of the jail cell and preparing to hang Rod by the neck with his own sheets. She calls for Glenn to wake her up, but in a classic, you had one job, Glenn, moment, he's fallen asleep too, and Nancy has to dream run the whole way back to her own house and wake herself up with Freddy pursuing her the whole way. Incidentally, as she runs up the stairs to her bedroom, her feet sink into the carpet and she has to pull them laboriously back out in a scene that was apparently quite controversial during the production. Shay wanted it in because it apparently matched some real-life nightmares he'd had, and he thought it would add verisimilitude to the conceit of the scare sequences being based on dreams, but Craven thought it was stupid and wouldn't look good on film. Eventually, Shay overruled Craven and directed the sequence himself, using by most accounts pancake mix to get the right gloopy texture on the sinkholes. This kind of creative clash is why we're not going to see Craven's name on the franchise again until A New Nightmare. Nancy's alarm finally snaps her out of her sleep just seconds before the knives dig into her, and if you want to find some logical inconsistencies to this movie, it never does explain why at the end Nancy can pull Freddy out of her dreams and into reality by grabbing him as she wakes up, but here she does the exact same thing and it achieves nothing, and she races to the police station to try to save Rod's life. But of course, it's a little bit difficult to explain that she's worried her friend is about to be dream-strangled by a ghostly revenant, and the delay in convincing the police that there's a problem leads to Rod's tragic death. The police are convinced that he died by suicide, but Nancy knows better. Incidentally, I'd just like to take a moment to concentrate on Freddy's M.O., because it's a very nice example of the show-don't-tell regarding something that eventually becomes canon in the series. He's not just trying to murder the Elm Street kids, he's trying to terrorize them. Because as we find out, he draws his strength from that fear and uses it to reap souls that then empower him further. It's also why he likes to stage some of the deaths as accidents or suicides, like Rod in this movie or Philip in Dream Warriors. Leaving his next victim helpless to convince anyone that what's happening to them is real suspends them in a state of dread, which has to be like a chocolate fountain for an entity that feeds on terror like him. It's also why he doesn't just kill them all over the course of a single night. He wants to draw out the experience, make it as awful as possible so he can derive the maximum amount of nourishment from his kills. We see a very interesting play on this in Freddy vs. Jason, which I've already covered. Also incidentally, I said the Elm Street kids, but that's a term used in the later movies. The words Elm Street are never said in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and in fact the title comes from a 1963 headline regarding the Kennedy assassination. Elm Street ran parallel to the parade route, and Oswald fled through it after killing the president. Craven apparently never forgot the evocative phrase. A funeral is hastily arranged for the young man, and wow is the priest judgy as fuck in his eulogy. None of this, oh, he was troubled and it's so sad, nope, this guy drops live by the sword, die by the sword, and even though he follows it up with judge not lest ye be judged, he's clearly pretty okay with that arrangement. He's played by Jack Shea, S-H-E-A, no relation to Bob or Lynn that I'm aware of. After the funeral, Nancy tells her parents about the killer she saw in her dreams, and it's clear from the significant glances they exchange that they recognize the man even if they try their best to pretend it's all just some form of PTSD. Which, honestly, would be the best explanation for all this in real life. If you freelanced a bit of vigilante justice when your daughter was little and she begins having nightmares about the serial killer you extrajudicially executed immediately after the death of her best friend at the hands of someone else in her social circle, you could be forgiven for imagining that this was some kind of repressed memory bubbling up to the surface. That's why I love it so much when Marge's response is to take her daughter to a sleep specialist. It is a very reasonable, very common-sense response to everything that's happening and to find out that her doctor is Roger Rabbit only makes it better. Nancy undergoes a sleep study, despite her insistence that she'd much rather just take dream suppressant medication. There isn't really such a thing, even though some sleeping pills can make it harder to recall your dreams. But this is all going to come back in a big way in Dream Warriors. And of course, the sleep study goes exactly as you'd expect, with all of Nancy's brainwaves going utterly bugfuck as she gets pursued by Freddy in her dreams, and the doctor is completely at a loss to explain how any of it is even possible, and she wakes up with razor blade slashes on her arm, a streak of white in her hair, this is always so hokey in movies, but I never don't love it, and more importantly, a fedora hat in her hand with the name Fred Krueger stitched into the lining. This convinces exactly nobody of anything hilariously enough, and in the next scene Nancy's back home with her mom, and the medical professionals who just witnessed either the most bizarre sleight-of-hand trick in the history of medicine okay, maybe giving birth to rabbits is a little more impressive, or genuine proof that the world of dreams is an actual location accessible to murderous ghosts, either one of which would be something you would want to investigate further, are never seen again. Marge is trying to play off the whole thing as just a weird mental health disorder her daughter is experiencing, but Nancy has proof now that what she was experiencing is real. Marge slaps her across the face, because again, Ronnie Blakely is doing a full-on camp performance here, and the whole thing ends with Langenkamp pitching herself all the way up to 11 and shouting, screw sleep, as she hurls her mom's vodka bottle to the floor. I do have notes, admittedly. She should be putting the emphasis on screw, not on sleep, because people tend to put the emphasis on swear words, and she should be allowed to say fuck because she's not really in a mood to censor herself, but that last bit is a script critique and not a complaint about Langenkamp's performance. I wonder if the baudelarized swearing is a remnant of an earlier point in the film's development when Disney was interested in a PG version of the movie? Anyway. That afternoon, Glenn and Nancy talk about Balinese lucid dreaming in one of the single most clumsy and forced bits of foreshadowing I think I've ever seen in a motion picture. Glenn explains that Balinese dreamers just turn their back on their nightmares, reclaiming all their psychic energy and waking themselves up. And I certainly can't imagine how that's going to factor into the movie or anything. Nancy, meanwhile, is doing her pre third act exposition dumping by reading a manual on booby traps and improvised anti personnel devices, which is again just the clunkiest thing ever and a perfect example of how much of this movie's dialogue in the waking scenes is pure info dumping. But it's hard not to love Langenkamp's little smile as she says, I'm into survival. Again, Craven wanted this to be a feminist horror film, and we're about to get the payoff to that. But first, there's a little more exposition to wade through. Nancy comes home to find out that her mother has, over the course of a single day, hired the world's speediest and least ethical contractor ever to bar every single window and turn the house into both an impregnable fortress and an instant death trap in the event of any kind of household fire. This is just blatantly fucking illegal in the state of either California or Ohio. It's a huge violation of fire codes, and these parts would be required by law to be equipped with safety releases so they could be open from the inside in the case of emergency and oh, there's my weird real estate obsession going off again. Sorry. But then again, given the way this third act goes, I'm proven very much right in thinking this is a huge mistake. Nancy confronts her mom, and oh man, this is where Ronnie Blakely sees her chance and goes for it. She gives the most performance ever. Not the most amazing, maybe, but certainly the most, as she leads Nancy down into the cellar and explains that Fred Krueger was a child murderer with at least 20 victims who was let off the hook because of an error in the execution of a search warrant and who was subsequently killed by a mob of vigilante parents led by Marge herself. They burned him to death, she kept the bladed glove hidden in the basement as a souvenir, and she finishes the whole astonishing sequence by saying, can't get you now. He's dead because Mommy killed him. And how this didn't earn her another Oscar nomination I will never understand. She doesn't even raise her voice or change her facial expression, and yet she still somehow gives off more emotion than Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest. There's an extended version of this sequence floating around that comes from the work print, where she explains that both Glenn and Nancy weren't always only children, and also that Kruger came bursting out of the flaming boiler room on fire and swearing revenge, only to be shot in the head by Marge herself. And I can only assume we didn't get the full scene because Craven decided the world was not ready for that kind of glory just yet. Now, I've talked about this already in my episode on the remake, where we're revisiting this whole origin from the vantage point of 2010, where we know just how misguided all of the cultural influences that Craven was drawing from actually were. But it is worth looking at them from the perspective of the era, because they're very reflective of the fears and concerns that were driving not just the cultural conversation of 1984, but the political one as well. Those concerns are what changed Freddy from a child molester to a child murderer, after all, and that's something that's going to have very real effects on the entire franchise because a child murderer can somehow be made into a pop culture superstar in a way that a child molester can't. Basically, Craven is conflating a number of different legal principles here for deliberate effect. Although he specifically mentions a misexecuted search warrant leading to the evidence it uncovered being rendered invalid under Fourth Amendment protections against illegal search and seizure, that was something established as legal precedent all the way back in 1920. The doctrine is known as the fruit of the poisonous tree. What he's expecting his audiences to connect to emotionally is the far more recent Miranda case, which established that police are obliged to advise criminals of their Fifth Amendment rights regarding self-incrimination before they can use a suspect's statements against them. This was seen by many as a major blow to the law enforcement system's ability to secure convictions, because very few people truly understand just how much of the interrogation process is designed to secure false confessions. Google the West Memphis Three for a pretty good example of how shitty the system can be when it needs someone to stitch up for a crime. And with crime rates rising in the 70s due to overpopulation and economic hardship, a lot of Americans felt like the judges who were quote-unquote soft on crime were the biggest problem facing America. You can see this in almost all of the cop movies in the 70s. It is always cops who know who did it and have proof, but can't use it because the courts have handcuffed their ability to do their jobs. First Nixon and then Reagan ran on a platform of getting tougher on criminals and both won. So that's the whole Freddy Krueger killed 20 people and got away with it because of a liberal judge angle. But why kids? Well, for that, we have to go to a book from 1980 called Michelle Remembers, co-written by Michelle Smith and her psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder, in which he claims he was able to help Michelle recover repressed memories of ritual satanic abuse that occurred at the hands of her mother over the course of two years in 1954 and 1955. The story seems downright absurd now. Smith claims that her mother's cult actually managed to summon Satan, only to see him defeated at the hands of a manifested Jesus, Mary, and the Archangel Michael. And knowing what we know now about the process of memory formation, it's clear that Pazer used hypnosis to confabulate these memories in Smith's suggestible mind. But at the time, the stamp of an authority figure made the tale very convincing, and soon a lot of people jumped on board the ritual satanic abuse train. This leads us inevitably to the McMartin preschool trial, which lasted from the initial accusations in 1983 all the way up to the final dropping of all charges in 1990 and resulted in no convictions. The accusations became more and more elaborate and byzantine as the trial went on, growing from sexual abuse to a full-on conspiracy involving labyrinthine tunnels under the preschool that led to secret sites of full-on satanic cult orgies. Because nobody understood how easily confabulation worked, and especially how easily it worked in small children, almost everything was accepted uncritically by prosecutors who assumed kids wouldn't lie to them about something so serious, and threw almost all of it into their accumulating theories regarding the case. Even though one kid identified Chuck Norris as one of the adults who abused them. In 1983, when Craven was shopping the script to New Line, this would almost certainly have been front-page news, and it supposedly spooked Craven away from making Kruger into a child molester, because he didn't want to be accused of exploiting such a serious story for his low-budget horror movie. All of this would have been very much on the public's mind, though, when the film was released, which is one reason why it resonated so strongly with the viewing audience. With her confession complete, Marge tells Nancy to get some sleep, but Nancy knows that means death. She's got a plan, and she needs Glenn's help. She's going to go to sleep and dream of Freddy. Then when she begins struggling, Glenn can wake her up and they can knock the killer out with a baseball bat or something. Or something is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence, Nancy. Unfortunately for her, Nancy doesn't realize she's dealing with someone totally unreliable and useless. And yes, again, he's playing Glenn. And even though she tells him, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. In another classic line, Glenn does exactly that not long afterward. Nancy tries to call him to wake him up, but his parents take the phone off the hook and she's unable to reach him. Frustrated, she pulls the phone clean out of the wall. But it rings again, and the mouthpiece turns into an actual mouth, complete with licking tongue, as Kruger delivers the iconic line, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. And oh, hey, remember how they have that revolving room set they used for Tina's death scene? And remember what a big expense it was for a cash strapped production that was hoping to make a big impact on a very small budget? Well, guess what? Jim Doyle redressed that set as Glenn's room and uses it here for one of the most spectacular death scenes in motion picture history. Freddy's hands emerge from the mattress as Glenn nods off, dragging him, his record player, and his portable black and white television down into the hole in the mattress, and then a geyser of blood, literally hundreds of gallons, shoots straight up and spreads across the ceiling in apparent defiance of gravity as Glenn's mom enters the room and screams in horrified dismay. In actual fact, there were barrels of fake blood on the other end of that hole, and on cue, Doyle rotated the room and allowed them to drain into the set. This caused two problems. One, the set wasn't motorized. It was precisely balanced in weight along all of its axes so it could be spun freely with minimal effort, and oh hey, draining a few hundred gallons from the top to the bottom did funny things to its center of gravity. And two, there were live electrics on the set, and water conducts electricity. So Doyle got a thankfully minor shock, the room swung and spun erratically while everyone freaked out, and then all the water went running out and flooded the studio. I think it's probably for the best that filmmakers don't do as much of this kind of stuff anymore, and I don't want to romanticize it, but I'll admit, Jim Doyle makes it sound like a pretty fun time in the documentaries. Glenn's parents call an ambulance, that makes a little more sense when you see the deleted scene where the bed spits back up Glenn's corpse and much of the blood turns out to have been part of the dream, but as it is in the theatrical version, you are kind of left wondering what they think a doctor will be able to do to help their liquefied son, and Nancy watches from her own house, unable to do anything because her absolute fucking maniac of a mom also installed locks on the front door that can't be unlocked from the inside without a key, which she hid. I swear to God, whoever she hired to do this job is looking at so many lawsuits for this. Also, though, man, do they do good work. I mean, this was all in one afternoon. I can't even get a guy to show up for two weeks. Lieutenant Thompson is called into the scene, and I do kind of feel like Saxon's a little too rigid here, because he's literally staring at a gruesome murder that occurred right across the street from his own house involving his daughter's boyfriend, and all he does is glare sternly but that's what you get Saxon for and that's what he's going to give you. Nancy calls him at Glenn's house on the kitchen phone and tells him that she's about to catch the guy who did it and she needs him to break into their house and wake her up in exactly 20 minutes so that she can bring Freddy out of her dreams and he can arrest him. He doesn't believe her, of course. She hasn't slept in seven days and she's ranting about bringing a dead man out of her dreams to face justice for the murder of her friends. That's a pretty big ask, even if we as the audience know she's telling the truth but he stations an officer outside to watch his house just in case. Nancy, meanwhile, puts that contractor to shame. She manages, in the span of 20 minutes, to rig up a series of elaborate improvised booby traps in every room of the house that make Kevin McAllister's antics in Home Alone look subdued by comparison, then has a heart-to-heart with her drunken mom, who mentions that it's great how Nancy always faces her problems, but sometimes she needs to turn away, too. You know, like a balloon when something bad happens and she still gets to sleep in time to find Freddy in her dreams by half past midnight. That is one industrious teenager. Once she falls asleep, Nancy's dream self heads down to the basement where she finds the dream version of the razor glove missing. That's because Freddy's wearing it, and he's waiting down in a sub-basement of her house that looks just like his boiler room. Speaking as someone who's had dreams about hidden doors and secret rooms inside my house, I definitely felt this one. I remember one where I realized the TV playing a horror movie in the family den was actually a window into a secret room behind the wall. But I digress. After a long, tense search, Nancy finds Kruger, and I'll admit, even knowing this jump scare is coming, it's still a shocker, and she drags him out into reality as her alarm clocks wake her up. But unluckily for her, the cops are utterly indifferent to her plight, There's something almost comical about the way she's screaming through the window, oh god, he's in here, don't let him kill me too. And the cop is just, don't worry, everything's gonna be alright. And she's in fact locked herself in with a serial killer. Kruger chases her through the house, and I confess this is where the film falls down a bit for me, because while I do like Nancy's ingenuity, and I enjoy a film where the hero fights back, watching Freddy stumble from one booby trap to the next like, well, like the wet bandits really diminishes his menace right at the moment where it needs to be at its peak, and it turns the ending less into a massive confrontation between good and evil and more into a screwball live-action cartoon. I think if they were going to go with the lucid dreaming ending, they should have just gone with it instead of doing all the wacky shenanigans. That said, if they did that, we wouldn't get the impressive stunt that follows where Nancy lures Freddy down into the basement and lights him up with a jar of kerosene. They got Anthony Césaire, known at the time as the best burn guy in the business, to do this stunt. He also worked on Darkman, Chopping Mall, The Terminator, The Thing, Swamp Thing, and Dead and Buried, among many others. And although the plan was for him to simply climb the stairs and collapse before off-screen crew put him out with fire extinguishers, he instead improvised a fall all the way back down the stairs and a climb halfway back up again before finally slumping down. Even though his bulky build and the burn suit makes it very obvious that it's not Robert England, it's hard to care when the stunt is that impressive. Again, not that I'm not very happy that something like this is now done with CGI, because while Césaire came out just fine, Kane Hodder got third-degree burns from one of his fire stunts, and these things can go very badly very fast. It's okay to be impressed by this kind of hard work without romanticizing its dangers. With Kruger apparently dead and Nancy trapped in a burning house by her own mom, Nancy finally gets the attention of the cops, but when they break in, they don't find anything in the basement. While Nancy was shouting at the window, Kruger slipped past her to take his revenge on the person he was most desperate to destroy, Marge Thompson, Nancy's mother. They find him in the upstairs bedroom, still on fire, but determined to strangle her to death before he's finally claimed by the grave he's avoided for so very long. Then things get a little surreal, even by this movie's standards. Donald smothers the flames with a sheet, but when he pulls it away, Freddy's vanished and only Marge's corpse remains. It slowly descends into a glowing void that opens up in the mattress, and when the void reseals behind her, there's no longer any trace of either one of them on the bed. Don heads downstairs to manage the police response, and Nancy tells the spirit of Freddy Krueger that she knows must still be there, that she's done with him. She's still dreaming, and in her dream she's going to turn her back on him and take everything back he ever took from her. She's going to get her mother back and her friends, and he is going to be nothing again. And sure enough, as he lunges at her, he vanishes into mist and dissipates, and Nancy emerges from her parents' bedroom directly into a bright new day. And that's where things go from surreal to downright convoluted. Craven and Shay shot several endings for the film, so many, in fact, that they had to halt an important screening for the distributors at Paramount right at the beginning of the climax, because editor Rick Shane had a different final scene in the print than the one Shay described to Frank Mancuso Sr. He was head of motion picture development at the time. All of them begin the same way, with Nancy commenting on the strange fog and her mother coming out to announce that she's going to quit drinking, and all of them then proceed to Nancy's friends pulling up in Glenn's convertible alive and well. But that's where the similarities end. Craven wanted a happy ending, one where Nancy got to drive off with her friends back and her mom alive because of the power of Balinese lucid dreaming rewrote reality, I guess? But Shea saw big time sequel potential in the film, and he wanted a stinger that left it clear that Freddy was still undead and well. He demanded a shot where the convertible's cover rose up, revealed to be patterned with the same stripes as Freddy's sweater, and the car drove away erratically to suggest that the passengers were trapped inside. A third ending, where they cut back to the steering wheel to reveal Freddy now driving instead of Glenn, was shot but never used, and then Shea decided to add an extra twist on top of the twist with... well... Poor Jim Doyle. After everything he went through, with the time and the budget running out, Shay comes to him and says, Hey, can you maybe add a shot of Marge getting physically dragged through the little arched window on the front door by Freddy's glove? And with a sigh, he did the best he could. The result is one of the most infamously laughable moments in the entire franchise. A shot literally nobody, including the people who made it and the people who insisted on including it, are willing to defend. Freddy's hand crashes through the glass right next to Ronnie Blakely's head, and then we cut to what has sometimes been described as a mannequin and other times as a blow-up sex doll getting yanked backwards in a way that makes it clear that the legs don't actually bend. I know I cracked wise about the dummy of Johnny in the Night of the Living Dead remake, but it's a life sculpture next to this. It's not the best way to end the movie. But it's also not like this doesn't have plenty of great scares that'll linger in the memory long after this scene is forgotten. And will I hang on to this movie? That's honestly a little complicated. First, this is part of an 8-movie boxed set. So even if I wasn't going to keep this particular installment on its own merits, it's probably still going to stick around because I'm not going to sell the set off piecemeal. But second, if I were to consider just the original A Nightmare on Elm Street, and I was to admit that while there are a lot of set pieces I love, it can still be incredibly clunky and forced at times in the way it handles character and story, I'd have to say I still want to keep it for its place in horror history and the irreplaceable value of physical media in an era where digital movies can come and go on a capricious whim. I was actually going to use the streaming version for my notes pass, simply because I wanted to watch it in a different room in the house that didn't have a DVD player hooked up to the TV set, only to find that between October 31st, when I checked its availability, and November 1st, when I actually sat down to write, the movie had simply vanished from HBO Max. That's the kind of cautionary tale that reminds you to hang on to the movies you love, or even the movies that might not entirely be your cup of tea, but do have their charms, because you never know what the modern era of distribution and releasing might hold for them. And if you want to talk about capricious streaming services, the revolving room that was also used in Break into Electric Boogaloo, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as @halfhorror and on Tumblr, Blue Sky and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror. It's been a while since we've done a good old-fashioned video game adaptation, and since we've already tackled one of the two big-name classic franchises that got turned into movies, I feel like it's time to take a look at the other one. And it doesn't hurt that I got it for my birthday, which came and went while I was doing The Summer of Sam and left several brand spanking used DVDs in its wake. So let's dust off the old PlayStation 1 controller, sit through a few loading screens, and get ready for 2006's Silent Hill. See you then.